Revelation. You. Revelation, Revelation, what? Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 8. I must confess that this um, particular passage in this particular church is quite, um, quite challenging, quite sobering, so just be aware of that, okay? It's not to discourage you, but of things I've noticed about just going through the seven churches and how, how incredibly prophetic they are, and um, each one applies to the church today in different ways. And this one is no exception. We might not like it, but it is the reality, okay? And so look at verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Hear with an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Um, the first thing we notice about this church is that Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. He highly commends them in this particular church. And so this was an amazing church. But the reality of us, the reality is that none of us would ever want to be in this church. God commended them, but we wouldn't want to be in this church because this was the suffering church. In actual fact, a lot of the churches faced suffering, but this church faced some unusual suffering. And um, we don't like to talk about this, but it's so prophetic because there's so many that are suffering for Christ. We, we, don't, we don't tend to realize that over the last hundred years there's been more people martyred in the last hundred years and all the centuries gone before. And it's increasing. And it's good to be able to remind ourselves that the suffering church is very real. It always has and it always will be. And I say this with a sense of sober, being sober is that it's a possibility that we're going to be facing persecution in the future. It's only going to increase in the Western church. Because like it or not, God is glorified through suffering and it's how he purifies and prepares his bride and I think it's naive to think that just because we're in the western world that we're going to somehow avoid that it's all going to be nice and rosy and Jesus is going to come back and woo, he's going to go flying up to heaven but I what's happening in the world and what's happening in the western world we can see that there's an increasing pressure coming and it's going to come to the west and there's been a lot of prophetic words coming and some prophetic people going around actually sharing and God's told them to go to the West and tell them to prepare for persecution. And I think we have to take it seriously. And so when we go for this church, this was a suffering church. 
And, uh, and I don't, so it's quite sobering when you read, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, it's like, it's quite deep, it's quite heavy, but it's the reality, okay? Many were martyred here and suffered horribly. And it just wasn't a, time, a short time of persecution. They were persecuted for over 200 years in this particular church. And so we're not talking about just a little bit of a opposition, but it went on for over 200 years. They faced persecution in this church. And many were martyred and suffered horribly. Now, Smyrna was a city which was about 36 miles from Ephesus. Remember we looked at Ephesus last week? Well, Smyrna was only 36 miles from Ephesus. It was on the coast. It's, it's all, all these churches in modern-day Turkey. And Smyrna was a very wealthy city like Ephesus. It had about 200,000 people. And it had one of the best harbors in all of Asia Minor. And so it became a bustling and very thriving commercial center and a port for trade. And so it was a very wealthy city like Ephesus because all the ships used to come there and all their commerce and stuff and used to go up into Asia Minor. And there was a large Jewish population there because of all the commerce. As you know, Jews are good at commerce. That's what they're blessed at. And so there was a lot of money, a lot of commerce. And so there was a quite a large Jewish population in this city. And it also had the largest uh, garrison of Romans in all of Rome and actually Smyrna because it was such an important commercial city. So that's some of the background. It's not clear who started the church, although there was some suggestion that Paul made a trip to Smyrna when he was in Ephesus. We're not quite sure. He, remember, Paul was in Ephesus for three years, and there is some indication that maybe Paul took a short trip to Smyrna, was in Ephesus, planted a church and then went back to Ephesus. We don't know. That's all we know about it. We do know that it was not a very big church at all. Um, it was probably because of the persecution. Um, we know that Ephesus was, remember last week, so Ephesus was a big church. It was probably a, you know, um, like a mega church today. Very big, lots of people. But Smyrna was a small church. It never grew really big. But that's because of all the persecution. Now, why the persecution? Well, there's some reasons for it. Smyrna was designed and it was set out to be a giant symbolic idol of its patron goddess, Sabili, or Sabili, oh, I think it's pronounced Sabili. You've got to understand, in those days, it was all about pagan gods, and every city had their pagan gods, and they worshipped all these, these idols. Well, in Smyrna, they had a pagan goddess called Sibyl, and the whole city worshipped this god. Alexander the Great had visited the city 400 years. You all know heard of Alexander the Great. Well, 400 years earlier, he came to the city. At that point, the city was in ruins. He stayed there one night, and he had a dream. And in this dream, Sibyl, the goddess, came to him and, said, and instructed him to rebuild the city. And so he rebuilt the city, and it became Smyrna. And so this whole city was dedicated to this god of Sibyl. And this cult of the mother goddess is believed to be the earliest form of pagan worship in human history. And the Romans called her the great mother of gods, and the pagan believers regarded her as the giver of life and the great mother of gods to humans and beasts. And so this whole city of Smyrna was designed 
around this. They all worshipped. The, the temple was the center. And so everybody worshipped this particular god called Sabeel. And so you can understand the background. Now, Sabeel was an offspring of Zeus. And this is where it gets really weird because she was both female and male. And when Zeus saw his new child, he was horrified and ordered the male organs to be removed. Right, this is where it starts. This is what's behind this thing, okay? So the worship of this god involved rituals of self-mutilation and self-castration. That's how the, they used to worship him. And so once you're there, they had to go the blood day, and they would come in, they would worship, and they would take all sorts of drugs and medication, or drugs and stuff, potions, and they'd go into a trance, and so they'd become mediums and channels for the spirits to speak through them, and they would begin to cut themselves. It was a day of blood. And so they would actually cut themselves with knives as part of the worship. And if you were like a high priest in the temple or may in the temple, you were castrated. And they castrate themselves and they would become neither, they would become a third gender, neither male or female. And they end up dressing and looking like women. And they would become like the mediums or the channelers for the spirits to speak through them. What's interesting is that interesting today what's happening is when you think about it, there's this rise of no gender. It's the new thing that's rising. It's being pushed. There's no other female or male. And you have children where they give them drugs to try and suppress who they are because there's no gender. You're neutral. I want to suggest to you that behind that is the same spirit. This, it's a principality. And I want to suggest that that's probably the same principality that's behind what's happening today because principalities don't go away. They're, they're, they're just principalities. It's a bit like abortion. See, behind abortion is a principality. It's either the worship of Moloch or the worship of Baal, which was right back in the Old Testament, and that was child sacrifice. And so they would take their children and they would sacrifice them, literally. They'd put them on this. They had the, the Baal or the Moloch god was a big statue. It had arms out, and they put a fire inside, and they stuck live babies on the arms, and the babies used to cook to death. And they would be dancing and, and go into a huge orgy of worship. And so behind abortion, it would be, be exactly the same principality. And so often Christians, we try to fight in the natural. That's why abortion doesn't go away, because you're not fighting something in the natural. You're fighting a principality. And that principality has a right there, because when you bow down and worship it, you give it authority. And so you can protest and jump up and down and do all that stuff and do signatures, but the reality is it's still there because it's a spiritual battle. And it's only going to be removed by repentance and a, a concerted effort of prayer and whatever. Now, this thing with gender thing, I think it's the same thing. Because what's happening is the Western culture turns away from God. What tends to happen is that they bow down to these gods, these principalities. They don't know it. And so these principalities reemerge and they look quite different, but it's probably the same principality. And you notice with the transgender thing, the whole gender thing, it's very, very violent. It's very nasty. If you attack it, you get attacked. You notice that? If you speak up against it, whoa, you just get like something comes against you because it's a very vicious thing and it hates Christians. This is what was behind the city of Smyrna, same thing. It hated Christians. And so for 200 years, it persecuted the Christians in that city. So you've got to understand something. This is a spiritual principality. When you come against it, you're not going to fight in the natural. 
It's a, it's a demonic power. Don't bow down to it because the moment you're bowing down, you're bowing down to that principality. And the more you bow down to it, the more authority it has and the more it feeds on that. And so you have to be aware. Don't be ignorant of this stuff, okay? But don't bow down to it. I'm not going around saying attack you. I'm not saying that at all. But don't bow down to it because it is a God. It's a principality that's been unleashed because we turn away from God and we open those things up. And those things just don't go away. They just they, they hide and they just come back. And I think I'm, I'm convinced that's the same spirit that was back in, this, in Smyrna. And it's come back and it's going to get, and it, it, it hates Christians. It's aggressive. It will push and push and push. And so we have to be aware of that. So that's something you need to be, and this is what happened here. And so this whole city was bound down to this God, a principality, okay? And they worshipped it. And so it had a particular hate for Christianity. And so the Christians were persecuted. Jesus starts by giving them a resounding, triumphant message. And look in the beginning, he says, These are the words of whom is the first and the last who died and came to life again. In other words, he's saying, he's the beginning, he's the end, the conclusion, and everything in between. In other words, he's saying to them, I know the present, I know the future, and I know what's happened in the past. And this would have been encouraging for these believers to realize that nothing happens without Jesus being aware of it. He knows what's happened. He knows what's happening to them now. And he knows what's going to happen in the future. That's why he comes to that to encourage them. Okay, this is the message to Samaria. See, many had died. So his words to those who died, and he came to life again. He says, I died but came to life again, were particularly poignant for them. He had conquered death. And he knew their situation completely. He had been resurrected, and they too would be resurrected. He's alive, he lives continually, and he lives forever. And so you imagine a church under severe persecution, persecuted suffering, that would have been pretty encouraging, right? That's what they needed because they were going through some horrible stuff. And then he says there, he declares to you, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. And we don't like this. Afflictions is also translated tribulations. And so their persecution was so bad, he called it tribulations. I know your tribulations. This is something the Western church doesn't want to hear, doesn't like. Because we want all the fluffy stuff. You know, God's going to make us prosper. We're going to be rich. God wants to bless you. You've got a wonderful plan for your life. You don't go around saying, no, no. You're going to have lots of tribulations. What? Well, I don't want to follow Jesus if I'm going to get have tribulations and suffering. But that's what he says. He says, I know your afflictions. I know your tribulations. And tribulation describes a heavy pressure situation. In actual fact, the word was first used to describe the specific act of tying up a victim with a rope and lying a huge, and laying a huge big, laying him on his back and laying a huge big rock on his chest and, and the rock would slowly crush him to death. That's where the word tribulation comes from. Okay? That's what it means, tribulation. Get it? Not exciting, is it? All right? He's describing a situation that was crushing and debilitating. And Paul used that word often in his own life. 
Because Paul went through incredible suffering. He talks about all the tribulations he went through. That's what he was talking about. Something that was debilitating, crushing, not very nice. And so he used that word about his own life. And this is what the believers were experiencing in Smyrna from the demonic principality that ruled every aspect of this city because it was the center of the worship of that particular place. And then he says, I know your poverty. Oh, this doesn't go too down with prosperity gospel, right? This was a word for abject poverty. It's a word which refers to total impoverishment. It's someone deprived of the barest essentials for living. And so it would normally describe a homeless person begging for food. And so here's the church in Smyrna. They were poor. They were living in absolute abstract poverty. We don't want to hear that, do we? They were basically begging for food. They were basically starving. They owned nothing because of the persecution that we're facing. They were social outcasts because they were believers. The whole city was centered around this cultic worship. And so if you didn't worship this God, you were totally isolated from society. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't get promotion. You couldn't get any status whatsoever unless you made sacrifices to this goddess because the whole town was involved in it. And so if you wanted to get a job, you had to go, well, I'll give you a job, but you have to go and worship this God of ours. And, of course, the Christians said, no, no, it can't do that. If you became a Christian, you probably lost your job. And so they were reduced to absolute poverty and begging on the street. That was their life. Now, notice Jesus didn't come and say, I'm going to change that. He said, all he said, I've seen your tribulations. I've seen your poverty. On top of that, you have another group which also attacked them. So they had twofold attacks. The second group was the Jews in this particular city. Now, not all Jews are like that, but for some reason in Smyrna, it was different, and these Jews had it in for the Christians as well. And it says there that even Jesus denounces them, these Jews, and calls them the synagogue of Satan. And some scholars believe that the members of this Jewish community raided and looted and robbed many of these believers of their possessions. They were constantly slandering or blaspheming the Christians purposefully, mistreated them and humiliated them, and spreading rumors about them to the leaders of the city and the Roman officials. If a disaster happened in the city, any natural disaster or something wrong, they would blame the Christians. Because what happened, if you had a disaster, whatever it was, it meant that the gods or the God was angry. And so there had to be someone to blame. And so what better thing to do than to blame the Christians? And so they, because they'd made the gods angry by not worshipping them. And so the Jews used all that and were constantly stirring up trouble against the Christians in the city as well. And so to the point where Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan, which is pretty heavy. See, slander and blasphemy were strictly prohibited in the Torah. And God took it seriously, especially when it was against believers. And so Jesus called them the synagogue of Satan. Though they were Jews, their behavior was totally offensive to God because they were slandering and making accusations against the Christians. And then Jesus brings in one commendation. 
I know your affliction, your tribulations, and your poverty, yet you are rich. Wow. Can he say that about the Western church? <laughs> yeah, we might be rich in finances and money, but we're not rich probably towards him. They had spiritual riches, a wealth of spiritual gifts. They had a depth of spiritual commitment and covenant relationship really experienced, which often only comes through persecution and suffering. And so here's Jesus, and he says, I've got nothing against you. I see your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. But as I said at the beginning, none of us want to belong to that church. We wouldn't want to be there. Because it went on for 200 years, just persecution, suffering. We must never forget that some of the poorest churches in history have been spiritually rich. And some of the wealthiest churches have been the spiritually destitute. It's the opposite in the kingdom. But what's even more remarkable about this, and this is where it gets really heavy, he said, you're going to suffer even more persecution. Imagine receiving that letter from John the Apostle. Okay, you're suffering, you're going through tribulation, you're poor and destitute. That's it, the Lord's coming back. <laughs> it's all right, don't panic. It just means someone's gone to the office. And you basically feel like you're going through hell. And then John... His letter comes. He's just had this revelation of Jesus. And he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I mean, to be honest, I think if I was there, I was saying, I'm out of this town if I was there. I'm leaving, all right? Wouldn't you do that if you were there? It's like... I don't want to hang around here, okay? This is getting pretty tough as it is. I don't want to suffer anymore. I'm, I don't want to have some of them thought that, that, oh, man, blow that for a joke. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to some other place. I mean, I think I ought to have been like that, okay? Maybe because we don't suffer, like, persecution anyway. But imagine receiving that, okay? It's going to get worse. It's not going to go away. He's not going to come and rescue us. We're going to stay and this is going to get worse than it is already. You've got to be kidding. All he says is, don't be afraid. I, didn't, I wouldn't find that to be encouraging, to be honest. Don't be afraid. I think, what? I need something more than that, thanks. The word afraid comes from the word phobos or phobia which describes a fearful obsession, dread or terror about something that is imaginary or real that is looming ahead of them. This was a real phobia which was trying to grip their hearts. Wouldn't you feel that? It's like, we're going to suffer again? Even worse? Yet despite this, Jesus tells them to throw back their shoulders, stand fast, and courageously face the ordeal. It's interesting because when you go through the Gospels, one of Jesus' favorite sayings, if you look through it, often is, fear not. 
fear not. How many times did he say that to his disciples? You'd be surprised. Why? Because they were terrified, right? Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Right? Because they were frightened out of their wits. Fear is a very real, and he constantly calls us to face it and overcome it. Fear will paralyze you, especially the fear of men, and it will cause you to deny Christ. And fear paralyzes faith. Remember that thing. Fear will paralyze you. That's what will cause you to deny Christ. If you have fear of men, when the pressure comes, you'll deny Christ. And also it paralyzes faith. Fear is deadly. And you'll notice something. It's fascinating. Jesus never panders to our fears. It's not that he doesn't care. He calls us to live into a higher place. Remember, all Jesus' disciples fled. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember they fled? Why? Fear of men. When he was arrested. We know Peter denied Christ. But see, one thing about persecution, that when it breaks, what it does when it comes, it breaks the fear of men and the fear of death. It's interesting, if you want to be used by God, God, I've noticed if you see people that God uses powerfully, there's two things that they don't have in their lives. There's hardly any fear of men, and there's no fear of death. And when you get to that point, God can really use you. But the reality is most of the church today is bound by the fear of men, and is bound by the fear of death, especially in the Western world. We don't realize. That's why we bow down to stuff. That's why we compromise. If you look at the church compromise, it's because of fear of men. <gasps> what will people say if I stand up and say, no, I don't agree with that? And you see, that's how the enemy works. He tries to intimidate and to silence because fear brings compromise. And that once that fear gets a hold of you, you compromise the truth. For we're fr frightened of death. Imagine if you no fear of death. You think about that. If you had no fear of death, what you would do for God? Because most of the stuff, because we don't do things, is because of fear of man, the fear of death. Let's be really honest. Why don't we witness? Let's be really honest. Because of the fear of man, fear of being rejected, fear what they might say. <gasps> what would they say if I said that? Or stand up somewhere in your workplace. I don't agree with that. Oh, I can't do that. I might lose my job. Oh, I, 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 fear grips us. We're bound by fear. You see, but persecution and suffering breaks the fear. And that's why Jesus never panders to it. And that's why he said, he just tells them to stand. Fear not, just stand. Right? And so really, he's ordered his listeners to halt the operation in fear and to terminate its mastery over them. And Christ still speaks the same words today to his people, to his church Whenever we're being tempted to be engulfed with fearful thoughts and emotions, he doesn't pander to it. In actual fact, he'll put us in situations where we have to face fear. And I'm sure he's going to put the Western church into situations where we're going to have to face the fear of man that tries to paralyze us and shut us down. Because that's the only way you can overcome it. You've got to face it. And it confronts our own hearts. You see, we live in a day when the people long to be comforted and told everything will be all right and everything's going to be wonderful and we can escape all forms of suffering. For Smyrna, Jesus knew for them it was inescapable and so he lovingly forewarns them to prepare them. 
Jesus desired them to equip them mentally and spiritually so they could overcome. He doesn't pander to them. He says, you're going to face persecution. Some of you are going to be thrown in jail. Some of you are going to actually face death and to be martyred. But he said, if you remain faithful, you'll be okay. It doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? It's just like, all right, you're going to suffer even some more. Just remain faithful, even to the point of death. Imagine that. I don't think I, we'd want to hear that. Imagine if Jesus walked in our midst right now and said, you're going to suffer, and some of you are going to go to jail, and some of you are going to be put to death. But cheer up. I've overcome the world. Don't fear. Just remain faithful. You're going, I want a bit more than that, Jesus. It's like, I don't want to face that. Listen, we're going to be honest here, okay? Because we live in such an unreality in our Western culture. We really do. We live in a, a cocoon. Praise God. We're blessed in some ways. It's awesome. But do we think this is going to continue like that to the end until Jesus comes? I don't know. I'm not convinced of that at all. Because it's, God uses that to purify his bride. He uses that to cleanse his bride and prepare his bride for his coming. And so here was a church that was going to face some awful stuff in the future. And so there's a message here for us. It's vital to open our spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. An open attack was coming to them from the devil to destroy them. Prison and death was waiting for many of them. It was to test them. It was to test them to see if their faith was genuine and if their commitment to Christ was sincere. Now, scholars have debated over if this was a literal 10 days or a period of time. They don't really know. Many believe it's just symbolic because persecution in Smyrna lasted for more than 200 years. And what's interesting is that there were 10 persecutions of Christians by the Roman emperors. In other words, if you go through the history, there was 10 Roman emperors over that 200, 250 years that brought open persecution against the church. And so a lot of people think it was to do with the whole that period of history. I don't, we don't, it doesn't really matter. But whatever it is, it doesn't sound very exciting, does it? He just says, be thou faithful unto death. Jesus was requiring them to be faithful, reliable, loyal, and steadfast, no matter what, even under death. Devoted, trustworthy, dedicated, constant, and unwavering. It was a divine call to commitment regardless of the price that had to be paid. See, we're all called to pick up the cross and follow Christ regardless of the price we have to pay. And as I said at the beginning, in the last century, there's been more Christians martyred and died for the faith than all the other centuries before. And that's only going to increase. And then he goes on, he gives some rewards. He says, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Wow, here's one of those rewards. They're going to get a crown of life. It describes a crown given to athletes in the Roman Games, mainly runners who had run their race and finished victoriously. If you ran the race in the Roman Games and you were victorious, you appeared before the emperor and you got a crown of olive leaves. You see that on pictures, okay? That was for finishing the race. 
This is what he's talking about here. This is your reward for the crown of life. And there'll be no greater reward than Jesus personally placing a victor's crown on you for finishing this race of faith, enduring to the end. See, it's all about enduring to the end. And the prize will be a crown of life. And I'm sure it's going to be far more significant and powerful than a, a, a reef, you know, of olive branches. I think it's going to be absolutely magnificent and awesome beyond anything we can ever imagine. But it's only for those who overcome and you receive a crown of life. Did you know there's many different crowns? There's talks about the crown of incorruption. These are rewards. It talks about a soul winner's crown. If you're winning people to Christ, you're going to get a soul winner's crown. How many are going to get a soul winner's crown? Okay. There's a crown for winning people to Christ. There's a crown of righteousness. It talks about a crown of glory, which is often called the pastor's crown. Woo! Faithful shepherds are going to get a special crown. All right? There's a special martyr's crown. You see, there's all these rewards, and these crowns are all going to be incredibly significant. I've been to the Tower of London. I've seen all the, the Queen's crowns. If you go into the Tower of London, and you can go through down underneath, and you see all the crowns that the Queen has, the royal family, they're unbelievable. It's like, well, they're going to be, these crowns are going to be far superior than all those crowns. I don't know what they're going to look like, but they're going to be glorious, okay, because Jesus is going to give those crowns but they're only given to certain people for certain rewards for overcoming in certain areas. And so there are rewards in heaven. And then we have that final phrase. It says, let him who has ears to hear, let him what the Spirit says to the church. See, I think these, these seven churches are so prophetic. They're all prophetic messages that we need to listen to. Take heed. Take warning. Listen. Listen what the Spirit is saying to the church. And if I would say anything, what God is saying is don't be fooled. Prepare for persecution. You just don't, because things are getting worse and worse. We always talk about revival. Yeah, we're great to have revival. What say revival doesn't come? Right. What say, guys, I'm going to let you go through stuff? Because he loves us enough to do that because he's preparing a bride. Listen, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We know that God is shaking the church at the moment. How worse it's going to get, we don't know. You know, I think in New Zealand, I, it's just like I can't believe God's mercy to New Zealand. I think it's been more good luck than good management that we've kept coronavirus out. When I see what's happening in Australia, right? Melbourne shut down. Sydney's breaking all over again. The churches are still not meeting in those places. You imagine if we're still shut down. It's God's mercy, right? It's God's mercy to us. I don't understand because it just has to be God's mercy. And so God is shaking. But, don't be, but listen what God's saying. Don't think that things are going to get better. Because we know we can look at the book of Revelation. Things are going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. And we have to face that reality. So we need to make sure that we're hearing what is the Spirit saying to the church. And then he says, they who overcome for Smyrna, 
it was persecution and suffering, it says you'll not be hurt by the second death. Interesting phrase. It literally means the death of the second kind. What does that mean? Well, it refers to the eternal punishment for those who do not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Our first death is our physical death. We're all going to die. Every one of us is going to be dead, all right? Some sooner than others because of our age. But the death, the second kind, includes eternal punishment and banishment to God. But for those who love Jesus, we are ushered from this life into the presence of Christ and won't taste a further death, a second death. The second death is where the judgment, where people have decided if they knew Christ or didn't know Christ or not, if your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it says you go to a second death. In other words, eternal separation from God. But notice that there's an overcoming that is required. It's for those who overcome. It's a reward. You will not face the second death. Now, just in closing, one of the most famous people martyred in Smyrna, you might have heard of him, was Polycarp. He's one of the most famous early people who got martyred. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. And he became a bishop of Smyrna in about the second century. At 86 years old, and it's well documented, you can read a whole thing on it. There's a whole, like a little wee, uh, there's a whole letter about Polycarp's martyrdom, because he got martyred, right? But he was the bishop in Smyrna in the second century. At 86 years old, he was arrested and dragged into the great stadium of Smyrna, where he was going to be fed to the wild animals. Three days before his arrest, he had a trance and he saw his pillow burning with fire and he told everyone, it must need be that I will be burnt alive. Right? And so they arrested him about three days later and they tried to make him say, Caesar is Lord and bow down and burn incense. But he refused, of course. And when he came to the great stadium, a voice came to him from heaven and those close to him heard the voice, a bit like when, Jesus, when God spoke to Jesus. Remember, there was a voice from heaven. Some said it thundered. Some heard it. Some didn't. Okay, same thing with Polycarp as he came in. And the words were, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And people close to him heard the voice from heaven. In the stadium, they tried to make him say, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. That's a funny statement. Early Christians were accused of being atheists. How about that? The reason being is because they didn't worship, didn't have idols in their homes, and they didn't worship the God, okay, of that particular place, the, the idols. So they were called atheists. And so that was the accusation against Polycarp, okay? They said, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, and say away with the atheists. Isn't that funny? He waved to the crowd, groaned and looked up and said, away with the atheists. Took a, just spoke back to them, okay? The magistrate pressed him hard and said, swear the oath and I'll release you if you revile the Christ. Polycarp said, four score and six years I've been his servant and he hath done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The magistrate said, I'll cause thee to be consumed with fire 
If you despise the wild beasts, unless you repent. In other words, he said, if, you, if you're not going to repent, I'm going to feed you to the wild animals, which was worse than, than being burnt to death, basically. But Polycarp said, thou threaten that, threatens that fire which burns for a season, and after a little while it's quenched, for thou art ignorant of the fire of future judgment and eternal punishment, which was reserved for the ungodly. Why then delay? Thou come do what you will. Okay, there's old Polycarp, okay? He just stood his ground as a testimony to what Christ, who Christ was. He prayed. They lit the fire, tied him up, lit the fire, but it never consumed him. The fire was burning. He, just, he was staying there. Nothing happened, okay? And, of course, they all freaked out. And so the execution went up and stabbed him with a dagger. And there came forth from out of him a dove. Everyone saw it like a dove came out of him. And then there was a whole lot of blood. It was such a huge quantity of blood that it extinguished the fire. <laughs> the fire went out. And then he died. Okay? That was his testimony. And so he was a famous, one of the famous people who was martyred at Smyrna. But there were many who were martyred and tortured in all sorts of horrible ways. Okay? But that was the church at Smyrna. I hope that's encouraging. <laughs> but <laughs> it's meant to be sobering because that's the reality. Okay? Jesus gets glorified with the persecuted church. We don't see it that way, do we? We think that's, we just say that's ridiculous because we want a life of ease. We want to be, you know, we want all the blessings and all the rest of it. But the reality is Jesus never rescued them. He never rescued Samaria for poverty. He never rescued them for persecution. But he was glorified in it. His name was lifted up. His name was glorified. And so they went for that for 200 years. You imagine living like that for 200 years, having a history of people being martyred, being fed to the wild animals. Fed to the wild animals was worse than being put in a fire because what they'd do, they'd have all these animals and they wouldn't feed them. They'd tie, like tigers, lions, packs of wolves, elephants, you name it, and they would starve them beforehand and they would stick all the cushions in the arena and they'd let the wild animals come in. And they would just tear the, all these Christians apart, children, mothers. You imagine a mother, all their children, being torn apart by white animals. And all the crowd, be 20, 30,000 sitting in the arena cheering them on. What, cheering. That's how bad, that's how pagan this society was. Okay? And that's what it was like. That's the reality for many, many people, faces that we never know, never heard of. But I tell you, when we get to heaven, they're going to be, I think... <laughs> I think they're going to be in a higher place than a lot of we are. They're going to be very, they're going to have lots of rewards because most of the people in heaven we're going to know that going to be to, we're going to be totally unknown on earth. And we're going to say, how do they get so much glory? How come, who are they? We're going to be marveling. And they say, well, he got martyred back then. He remained faithful to the end and stood his ground. You see, it's all different. Everything's upside down. It's never, nothing's what you think in the kingdom of heaven. That's sobering, isn't it? I read this, it's quite sobering. And when you hear some of the stuff, there's only half the stuff, some of the horrible things that happened. Some of them were tortured, martyred in the most horrible ways. Hundreds of them, unknown, never heard of. But they remained faithful. And Jesus was glorified in it all. And so let's stand, shall we?
Let him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I don't know how you respond to that. I really don't. All right, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. It, I know it's, I mean, I, when I prepared it, Lord God, I know it's really sobering for me. Because, Lord, it just brings a different aspect that we don't talk about. Lord, we live in a, such a society. Lord, in some ways we're blessed. We thank you that, Lord, we acknowledge that you determine, Lord God, where we live. You determine where we're born. You determine that we were born in New Zealand. And, Lord, we live in a land where we don't suffer any persecution, really. But, far we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know what you're going to do in the future. But I pray, Lord God, you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, I know one thing, Lord God, that when you look at your church, you, you want to burn out the fear of man and you want to burn out the fear, fear of death. Lord, because those are two things that will bind the church up and paralyze the church more than anything else. It will bring compromise It'll bring a weak church. So, Father, I pray that you would show us, Lord God, Lord, that you don't pander us when it comes to those things because you don't want us to have the fear of man. Lord, I just, I know there's fear of man even in my life. I confess that, Lord God, that, Father, many times when I've sort of spoken and I haven't because of the fear of man. I'm scared what people will think or say. Lord, I pray you'll deliver us from the fear of men. Lord, you would fill us with boldness. Lord, we know that in the book of Acts, one thing that they had was a boldness. Lord, you filled them with boldness. Lord, we talk about the Holy Spirit and we, we've talked about that, but Lord, one of the hallmarks of, of a genuine baptism of Holy Spirit is that we're filled with boldness. Boldness to share, a boldness to proclaim, breaks the fear of man. Lord, I pray you'd have mercy upon this nation, Lord God, that, Father, you'd raise up your church that'll be full of boldness in the days ahead. Lord, it will not compromise in any way whatsoever. Lord, give us discernment how to fight, Lord God, some of these principalities, Lord God, that are coming. Lord, I know the whole transgender thing's not going to go away. Lord, the enemy is going to use that, Lord God, to even put more pressure upon the church and other issues, Lord God, that are there. Lord, I pray you'd give us ability to be able to how to fight in the spirit. Lord, um, how to stand in that, Lord God, without being hateful, but Lord, standing nevertheless and being bold. Father, fill your church with boldness, the ability to stand and not compromise. Father, prepare us for the days ahead. Prepare your church. I don't know really what I mean. I, I mean, I would like to pray. For, if, you, if anyone's got a real like, a, if you have a real like a parent, a real fear of men. I mean, just everyone's got fear of men. But if you've got a real, it's almost like a phobia. Anyone's got any phobias in that area? Just a real fear. Even what I've been sharing is like it puts shivers up your spine. Think, oh my goodness. I'd love to pray for you because God wants to deal break that thing. Okay. So if anyone's like that, I'd love to pray for you.
Does any have words of knowledge?